Welcome to Moments with Marianne. This is your host, Marianne Pastana. And we're here today with special guest, Dr. Rachel Turo, who's here to share with us her new book, The Self-Talk Workout, Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. So Rachel completed a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Oregon, a clinical internship at the Portland Veterans Affairs Medical Center, and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She also worked as a supervising psychologist and research scientist at Rush University Medical Center. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rachel Turo. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's such an honor to talk with you about your new book, and I knew as soon as I heard about it, we needed to talk. Self-talk seems to be such a hot topic. Yeah, I've been interested in it for a while. Actually, I didn't hear that much about it when I was studying to be a psychologist. Of course, I knew that self-criticism was a symptom of depression, but I didn't understand what a big role self-talk would play in almost every patient that I saw. Wow, that's just, it's just amazing. And I'm so glad that we have this information now. So how does this impact health and mental health? Well, the evidence shows that self-criticism basically makes everything worse. Of course, it's normal to have things about ourselves that we want to improve or that we're working on, but most people just take it too far where they're just sort of beating up on themselves all day long in their minds, just criticizing themselves constantly. And it becomes this habit that's even a little bit challenging to reverse without some specific tools or techniques. The habit sort of takes on a life of its own. So the science shows that self-criticism worsens anxiety, it worsens stress, it worsens depression, it worsens PTSD. Basically, it's just not good for you. So are there studies that have been done to kind of show how this impacts mental health? Absolutely. So we have really good information from depression. We've known that self-criticism is a big part of depression, not all depressions, but many depressions. We've known that for a long time, but now the evidence is really strong that self-criticism plays this role in maintaining anxiety. So for instance, if a patient comes to see me and they're feeling really anxious, they're usually not only feeling anxious, they feel bad about themselves for feeling anxious. I'm terrible that I feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way. I have to have this, um, you know, I have to get rid of this, that there's something wrong with me. So that criticism about the feeling actually is causing more stress than the feeling itself. We could really work on the feeling of anxiety itself if that, you know, um, self-criticism weren't so intense. So a lot of times when a patient comes to see me, we have to address the self-criticism first. Like, it's okay that you have these feelings. They're normal. You're human. And to kind of get to a place of a little bit more acceptance and allowing before we can actually get to the material underneath. In your book, you share about automatic thoughts and core beliefs. So how does someone identify the, the kind of talk that they are hearing? Well, I think a lot of people have the sense that this is a part of their mental experience. So that phrase, I'm my own worst critic, I hear that all the time from my students and my patients. And that core belief that this is really a part of me, this is who I am, people feel that very strongly. Like they don't even know who they would be without that. But I challenge that a little bit. We also have really good information that self-criticism develops over time. I don't know if you've ever met a really self-critical baby. I'm not sure they really exist. But um, over time, these different factors contribute to self-criticism. We have the negativity bias in our brain. We pay more attention to things that are difficult than things that are easy. And brains just sort of seem to be like that. We also have a culture that has a lot of competition very competitive. We sort of evaluate ourselves. We evaluate other people and we're sort of used to doing that. And that becomes a habit. And then if a person experiences bullying or emotional abuse, racism, homophobia, this bad treatment sort of gets under our skin. And even if you know that it's bad treatment, it seems that people sort of keep it up. They do it to themselves. So there are these different factors that influence the development of self-criticism, but then it just sort of becomes a mental habit that we can change, but first we have to sort of notice it and believe, okay, actually it can be changed. This isn't who I am. 
this is just a habit that I'm used to doing. So does this also include people who have anxiety or stress that they fall within this category of they need to work on their self-talk? Yes. And of course, not everyone. And, you know, self-talk can't change all of the problems in the world. There are some just really terrible things that happen to people that no matter how um, well-developed their mental health skills are, it's still going to feel really crummy. But absolutely, self-criticism worsens stress. So stress is difficult, but then if you tell yourself, oh, I'm so terrible, why can't I handle this? There's something wrong with me. I shouldn't feel this way. That exacerbates the stress. It makes it worse. So instead, when things are stressful, it seems that acceptance plays a really big role, not in terms of, okay, the stress is awesome. It's wonderful. I love all these stressful things in my life, but but just really noticing, okay, I feel stressed. This is human. Maybe I need to make a change. Maybe this is just how it is right now. How can I take care of myself? So if you can meet that stress in a way that's kind and encouraging and supportive, that makes it much more helpful. And of course, if you're terribly stressed, that's a really hard time to try out a new mental skill. So I actually recommend that people try these self-talk techniques, kind of like taking your vitamins. Don't wait for things to be really awful before you try one out in your mind. Instead, if you have something minor, a minor stress, like a headache or kind of a difficult email exchange, that's another opportunity to give yourself some care and be kind. Okay, I'm struggling. This is a little stressful. How can I be really supportive to myself in this moment? Okay, I can try saying to myself, inhale my friend, exhale my friend. That's just a one breath technique that can help shift that self-blame and self-criticism towards a kinder way of relating to yourself. You must hear people saying things like, and I'm sure, you know, we've all heard this, that the self-talk, the negativity is all in your head. So you just have to decide to change that. Is it that simple for people? I don't think so. I mean, I wish it were, honestly, that'd be great. I think we would all just choose to be happy all the time. You know, I don't even really like that phrase, positive self-talk. I think it's really murky. I'm not really sure what that is because it could mean like, thinking that things are going to go well, or thinking that you're the best person in the world. And that's really not what I mean when I think about specific self-talk techniques. So even though this does kind of get relegated sometimes into this sort of woo-woo topic, the evidence is now really strong. We have a lot of great research studies showing that if you want to change your self-talk, it doesn't seem that the intention okay, I want to help have better self-talk. I want to be nicer to myself. That doesn't really seem to get you very far. Instead, the best evidence comes from the skills of mindfulness meditation or self-compassion techniques like loving kindness meditation. Those techniques have the strongest association in terms of going from more critical to self-talk to more healthy, encouraging, compassionate self-talk. So what would that look like for people who maybe don't even know where to start? Like, how could they even start developing a practice of that? Well, my book, The Self-Talk Workout, starts out with sort of appetizers, the smallest chunks of skills. So I mentioned that single breath technique of just saying, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. Another technique that I really like is called spot the success. So this is to counteract that feeling of, oh my gosh, I haven't done enough. I have so much to do. I can't even get it all done. And that kind of overwhelming, crushing agony of the to-do list. It's really easy to focus on what you haven't done. And Spot the Success asks you to focus instead on what you have done. So if you make to-do lists, it's sort of that good feeling of crossing off an item. Oh, I did that. Spot the Success means generating and a list that's all things you've already done. It's a done list instead of a to-do list. And the catch is that there's no item too small. So even getting out of bed, taking a shower, getting dressed, taking a vitamin, sending a text or an email, these are all positive, healthy actions that you're doing in service of your life or somebody else's life or the world. And we don't usually notice them. We sort of brush them aside, disregard them, um, downplay them. But instead, we can just take a minute to really acknowledge, okay, I did that, and I did this other thing, and here are 10 things that I've done today. 
and to take a moment to marinate in that feeling. And my students who practice this exercise, spot the success, report that it helps them feel less overwhelmed by all the tasks that they have. It helps them feel more confident, more effective, and it even can energize them to do more because instead of seeing themselves as, oh, I'm not doing enough, I'm terrible, they start to see themselves as, hey, I'm doing some things here. Okay, I can do a little bit more. Great. So in your book, you talk about self-talk and self-esteem. So are those the same thing? I'm glad you asked that, Marianne. No, they're not. I know they can seem similar. When I was a kid in the 1980s, the self-esteem movement was really big. And people had this um, idea that came out of a really helpful, kind place of good intention, thinking that if we boost kids' self-esteem, if we tell them how wonderful they are, then they're going to feel better. They're going to have better mental health. And the problem was that it didn't really work. So um, self-esteem involves comparing yourself or evaluating yourself. You're either um, assessing how you stack up against other people, or you're kind of um, measuring how good you are in these different domains. Now, self-talk or um, self-compassion, I use the word self-talk to think about how you relate to yourself. And the science indicates that that comparing yourself, even if you're comparing yourself as better than other people, is activating this judging part of ourselves that does not seem to be linked with good mental health. So that judgment, you know, putting yourself up, putting other people down, kind of being in that judging place, that can lead to a lot of anxiety. And it's not stable because even if you're, you know, the best swimmer in elementary school, then you get to middle school and you're not the best swimmer, right? So that self-esteem that you built on evaluating and comparing, even if it was to your benefit, it's not stable across contexts. But however, being kind and encouraging and supportive to yourself, even in moments of stress and failure, that generalizes across contexts. So it doesn't matter if you move to a different group, um, if you're around different people, if you're you know, in a new job that's really difficult, because instead this habit of self-compassion or um, really healthy self-talk, you can take that with you. And so you're not measuring yourself like you would be if you were thinking self-esteem. It's not about how great you are. It's about how kind and supportive you are towards yourself. I really love in your book, you talk about how we can look at self-talk challenges as small, medium, large, and I'd love for you to share on that with us. Sure, no problem. Well, you know, I think that this is an area that some people have been working on for a long time. Um, Perhaps people have been in psychotherapy to address different traumas or struggles or mental health issues they've been through. And a lot of people have built some useful skills. So if you just would like to be a bit nicer to yourself, but things are basically, you know, going all right, you might just want a few new perspectives. You might want to tweak things a little bit, and that's completely fine. Then when I think about sort of a medium level of challenges, I'm thinking about people who struggle with this on most days, that it's it's not so easy to feel okay about themselves, whether it's your looks, your body, your career, you know, your relationships, that everything just kind of feels hard to feel good about. And, and maybe some things are going well. Maybe it's only certain domains that are really challenging. Sometimes people feel effective in one area of life, but they really put themselves down in another. So I might think of that as a medium level of challenge. And then when I think of a large amount of self-talk challenge, I'm thinking of people who really feel like being mean to themselves is their main mental experience, that that's really the zone that they inhabit. And I've been there. That's where I was um, when I was a teenager. It was so painful. And I really um, have a lot of sympathy towards people who are experiencing those types of feelings. It usually goes along with depression or anxiety, feeling lonely, feeling alienated. Because when you feel really terrible about yourself, it it can feel like you're the only person who really feels so crummy. And in that sort of situation, I think that these skills can be helpful. And it can also be helpful to work with a counselor or a support group. And if there's ever a sense that somebody isn't safe, 
um, if they're at risk for self-harm, hurting themselves, or suicide, then that's when it's important to seek help right away by calling one of those 24-7 helplines. And there's also a text line too as well. Such important information to have there. And you know, it has me thinking a lot of times you hear people say, well, you know, either they're being self-critical of themselves or they have people who are critical of them. They're like, well, I'm just motivating you or I'm motivating myself. I, how useful is that? Yeah, I, I, a lot of people really do think that your self-criticism is motivating you. And I mean, maybe we have that image in the movies of, um, you know, a coach or a trainer who shouts at the athletes and then they do better. And we kind of shout at ourselves to do better. It's a really powerful image. And as a researcher, I think it's really compelling to look at the data. And so even though people assume that self-criticism is motivating, it is actually not associated with high levels of performance. So people actually do better when they're more encouraging towards themselves. If you're really critical, it can lead to procrastination. I don't know if you've ever tried to write something and you, you can't even type because your inner editor is saying, no, that's not right. That's not okay. So, um, so some encouragement on the other hand leads to better outcomes. People are also rated more highly in terms of their relationships and their performance by their coworkers when they're compassionate towards themselves versus critical. So when we get to this place, we've been practicing and we have developed healthy self-talk. What are some of the benefits of that? The benefits are that we have more mental energy for other things. It can really take up a lot of your brain activity to be evaluating yourself all day long. It's kind of a drag really. So if we can do that a little bit less, and I'm not sure it's um, possible all the time to eradicate it completely. If we can do that less, then our brains and our energy levels are more free to do other things. We also experience less stress, less anxiety, less, less depression. So when self-criticism is reduced, mental health is increased. Right now, we're really fortunate to have a lot of clear data about that. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> you know, having that, that healthy self-talk is so important. But you know, I hear about that, and then I hear about toxic positivity. So are they the same thing? Well, I think it's easy to get confused about it. So I don't think that healthy self-talk means feeling happy all the time or acting like you're happy. And I think that's what people mean by toxic positivity. Like you have to act like you feel great and growthful and have no negative thoughts or feelings. So that's not what I mean by healthy self-talk. And in fact, the last chapter of my book is called Allowing All Feelings Skillfully. So instead of toxic positivity, I hope that people can make space to allow themselves to have all sorts of feelings. And it's not always fun, but just being a human, sometimes we will get angry or frustrated or disappointed. And when those feelings come, I think it's important not to suppress them. And I think that the healthy self-talk is about acknowledging the truth, the reality of those feelings. Sometimes really bad things happen. And we you know we read about something terrible in the news. And, and I think it's really weird to not have it affect us at all. Or something difficult happens in our own life. And during those times, healthy self-talk can come into action when you allow yourself to really experience that feeling, but also support yourself while you're experiencing it. So that means noticing, okay, I'm feeling really jealous. That's something I wish that I had for myself and it's not working out for me. This is a painful feeling. And one way to cope with that feeling instead of, you know, pretending it's not there, shoving it away, smiling, one way to cope is to say, you know, how can I help myself through this? Is there anything that could help me feel a little better? Or where do I feel this emotion in my body? Can I get curious about it instead of, you know, trying to uh, bottle it up? So there are some strategies that I introduce in that chapter, allowing all feelings skillfully to be with painful feelings more effectively. We can't get rid of them. That's not something we can do. 
And that toxic positivity of people who think you can get rid of all painful feelings or that you should suppress them, you know, that can also make other people feel bad if we act like, you know, we have to be happy all the time. They have to be happy all the time. So it's very powerful to be able to sit with somebody who's upset and just say, you know, I'm here, I'm here for you and not, you know, push them to feel any certain way. That's often not helpful. We don't really want our friends to do that. And then we want to be that same kind of good friend to ourselves to be able to be with our feelings in a supportive way. I really enjoyed reading about how the inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend really has a lot more behind it than just saying those words. Right. Those words are sort of a placeholder um, and people can use their own variations. Of course, another language. I actually like to say, inhale my love, exhale my love. But one thing that the practice does is it makes your breath a little bit longer. So when we're stressed, we tend to take those like short little shallow breaths. And then, you know, it sounds corny, but that take a deep breath that can really calm people down. So some people like to try to lengthen their breath during moments of stress, stress, like uh, breathe in for four, exhale for eight especially lengthening that exhale can be really effective. But there's a very long tradition of trying different breathing techniques to calm yourself down. This one I like because it adds that friendship, that kindness to the breathing sensation. So when you breathe in, inhale, my friend, you're lengthening the breath, which reduces stress. But also, it's just hard to beat up on yourself when you're calling yourself my friend. So it's training your mind instead of being mean to yourself to be a little bit kinder and more supportive to yourself. Well, if people are working on this practice, is there a way that they can redistribute their attention towards something that's really working for them and not get stuck with the things that aren't? Yes, I introduced six practices in this book, the self-talk workout, because people are really different. And so what is helpful for one person might not feel best for another. And especially for people who feel anxiety, paying attention to the breathing sometimes can make them more anxious. So they might, for instance, like the um, spot the success practice better, where you're listing those 10 things that you've done well today, or that you've done, you know, that were that helped yourself or someone else. Also, some of the practices take a little bit more in terms of mental investment. So I do have a chapter on mindfulness meditation, and that chapter is called non-judgment, or at least a lot less judgment, because one of the ways that mindfulness meditation works, a key ingredient is that it trains us to judge less and to judge ourselves less. So a lot of people have this assumption that mindfulness means clearing your mind, but instead it's more about noticing your mind and making some attention training changes. So you notice where your mind goes and you bring it back to the breath. And when you bring it back, you try not to get upset that your mind went away. So I'm teaching mindfulness right now. I have 40 students um, in two sections at Seattle University. And I sort of have to tell them over and over again that it's okay to be distracted if you sit down to meditate for five minutes. It's really hard, but you could think about this as a really tough mental workout. This is a hard mental workout. And So not everybody is going to want to do that. That's why I have other strategies. But I will say that the evidence is just so strong that that mindfulness practice over several weeks, if you can do it a few times a week for several weeks, results in really powerful changes in terms of judging yourself less. But if you don't like mindfulness meditation, there's another form of mental training that's also very powerfully associated with less self-criticism, and that's loving-kindness meditation. So instead of just paying attention to the breath or something else like you would do in basic sitting, breathing mindfulness meditation, for loving-kindness meditation, you're instead silently repeating specific phrases to yourself, such as, may I be safe, 
may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. So these are positive wishes towards yourself, wanting to be safe, wanting to be happy. You know, may life be less of a struggle. May things go well. May I feel peaceful. And come up with about three or four phrases. And this can sound sort of corny or hokey. And a lot of students are skeptical that this is going to work, but they try it out anyway. And even the students who are skeptical usually say that, okay, I tried this out and I did feel different afterwards. Or after a few weeks, I noticed that my roommate wasn't getting on my nerves as much, that I felt a little bit kind, more kind in that relationship. So um, you can direct good wishes to yourself, but also to other people or to all beings. And um, I'll encourage you to look that up if you're interested. There are a lot of wonderful research studies showing that loving kindness meditation or um, LKM um, is linked to positive mental health benefits, especially less self-criticism and it can also improve relationships with other people. So that's the reason I have six different practices because people might be different and because some of them can be met with a little bit of resistance at first. But if you can just find one practice that seems like it could work for you, you can try that one out. Um, if it doesn't seem to work, you can try out another one. But some of the practices like mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation, the research shows that they have the most benefit after several weeks of practice. So while I do encourage people to kind of pick what's right for them and jump around, I also um, mention that some of these practices can take a few weeks before you'll see effects. So just be patient and it will happen. That's what the evidence shows. And um, it does happen for most people with these practices. But again, you can try a different one if that seems best for you. Do students find it easier than they believe to you know, either break these um, patterns of self-talk that they've had in the past? I honestly usually hear skepticism at first. Because again, people are so identified with this self-critical part of themselves. They really believe that this is who they are. And some of these practices are different. And when you think about how we build mental habits, I mean, it's usually over years and decades. So if you have a little bit of skepticism or um, feel really reluctant to try something new, I really want to normalize that and validate that, that, yeah, it can be a little bit weird. But I tell my students, you know, you've done other hard things in your life before. You really have. You've done so many hard things. And this is just a different kind of hard thing. So sitting down for five minutes and practicing, noticing how you're treating yourself in your mind and trying out one of these new skills, it'll feel a little bit weird, but but it is safe. You're, you're just sitting for five minutes. And Maybe if you tell yourself in advance, okay, this might feel a little bit unusual at first, especially the first few practices, and that's totally normal. And I might even, you know, get a little discouraged and say, this is so hard or I can't do this. And I want to also communicate that that's normal. And if you can get sort of past that initial discomfort and practice for a few weeks, I think that's a good time to really check in and say, hey, am I noticing any changes here? How do people identify how, where they're at on, on like a scale of self-talk? You know, maybe they're with a family that that's all they do. And, and so they've been taught that, or perhaps it's someone that, that doesn't really have as much as somebody else. Right. There are some um, research instruments that quantify levels of self-criticism. There's a really good scale by Paul Gilbert, who is um, in the United Kingdom. He's a researcher on self-criticism and self-compassion. So I've actually done some research at Seattle University measuring students' levels of self-criticism before and after a four-week self-talk class. And so it's been really encouraging to see that practicing um, skills from this book the students' levels of self-criticism, depression, and anxiety decreased significantly. I don't think, though, that 
it's necessary to measure how much self-criticism you have in order to have um, benefits from new practices. So I think most people are pretty aware and they can become more aware once they kind of, okay, oh yeah, okay, that's something I'm noticing, how I'm treating myself. But this is a topic where I've had the response that, oh yeah, this is me, I do this. So I think people sort of know if this is a habit that is affecting them. And once you know that it's there, you might even notice it more at first when you're working on it. So I would say, um, you know, don't get discouraged if you start noticing it more once your antenna are sort of up for it. That's kind of part of the process. And then after you start to notice it more and try out some new ways of relating to yourself, building those new habits of talking to yourself in a more, you know, kind, friendly, encouraging, supportive way. Once you have those new habits in place, that's when those old habits begin to fall away. You have so much great research and stories in this book. Do you have one that you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, it was interesting because I was teaching during the pandemic. So I was online teaching and um, a lot of my students were very isolated. So it was a time when a lot of people were very depressed. And I remember this one um, student who was trying out the loving kindness meditation, repeating those phrases of goodwill towards herself and others. And the student wrote that it helped her gradually open her closed heart and start to connect with other people. And that really struck me as very beautiful. I also had a class full of basketball players. My first meditation taught class that I taught at Seattle University was during the summer where there are lots of basketball players around. And I remember, you know, walking into that class and not realizing it, that it was going to be mostly um, athletes. And um, it was really neat because they really understood the benefit of practice. So, you know, I asked them, okay, okay, you know, I'm not really that great a basketball player. It's a kind of just luck or chance if I can get the ball in the basket, you know, how many times would I have to practice to really, you know, become decent at basketball? Would I have to try, you know, like 50 shots, a hundred shots. And, and, you know, they laughed at me, which is good. And then they're kind of like, no, you really have to do this like 10,000 times to really build this skill. And hopefully they like it. They like practicing basketball. Um, but they, they really got that value of practice. And it was neat because then they could apply these self-talk skills um, on the court. So um, the response was really neat. The players told me that instead of kind of rehashing the last play and beating themselves up, oh, I should have done that. Why didn't I see the person, you know, the other player? They, they were more present for the next shot because they weren't criticizing themselves for what had just happened. They, they had developed that skill of quickly, okay, that happened. Okay, back to the breath, back to playing. So um, it, these skills, they don't only train less judgment. They're also training your attention so that you're not overly focused on what's going wrong, what you didn't do right. And you're more able to move your attention to where you want it to be. Well, that's a very important aspect of not not getting stuck there. And, you know, actually, as I'm thinking about this, in your experience, where do you see people normally get stuck? I think that people don't give themselves permission to be human, (laughs) to make mistakes, to be imperfect. And I think people often think it's just them. So when I worked at um, the Student Mental Health Center on campus, I would just have, you know, student after student say, it's just me, everybody else is coping just fine. And because I saw student after student say that, I could say, you know, it's not just you. And I think that people get stuck there thinking it's just me, there's something wrong with me. So instead, I really like to emphasize that, you know, being a person is hard, right? I mean, I don't think I know anybody who just coasts through life. Oh, nothing's ever a problem. Um, most of us really struggle with our own minds, our bodies, um, relationships, jobs. It's, it's not always easy. And so given that things aren't always easy, how can we be friendly to ourselves and helpful and kind instead of critical? And I do see a lot of people who want to be that way. 
And I've been really interested in, okay, how do we move from just wanting to be more supportive towards ourselves to actually being more supportive? And that's where I'm really a proponent of specific techniques. I am kind of a research nerd. So I'm like, okay, well, what does the evidence say? Which skills actually work in becoming nicer towards yourself? And that's why I've collected this group of um, skills and described the research that supports them. Do you find that people have a hard time just even treating themselves with loving kindness or friendliness? I think so. It's just very different from what people are used to. But I think it's all about practice. I mean, if you've ever tried to do a new physical activity or sport or, you know, run a marathon, it's kind of weird at first, but but then it gets easier. So these are sort of like muscles. And in fact, we are talking about specific brain activity. So it's not just woo-woo or some, you know, nebulous thing. We're talking about an actual mental workout. And it is going to feel a little bit odd or uncomfortable at first. There's even a phenomenon that some people describe with loving kindness meditation called backdraft. And that term backdraft refers to the discomfort of giving yourself kindness or love. And for, especially for people who didn't receive that from people where they really needed it, like, um, you know, if a parent was cold or abusive, or they didn't get the support that they needed in school environments where they were supposed to get that kindness and they didn't, people often kind of have to move through this grief when they first try to be kind to themselves. And it's sort of helpful to acknowledge, okay, this is uncomfortable because I'm not used to being treated well or treating myself well. And if it's possible to endure that discomfort, on the other side of it is more comfort. Because whenever you practice anything more, it gets easier. Well, thank goodness for that. And you have such great examples in your book that kind of help people find a starting place and and they're able to move forward. Thanks. It was really fun to work on this. And I'm really grateful to my students and patients who agreed to let me share their stories anonymously, because I think that those stories really bring these practices to life. These practices don't really mean much on their own. It's more about, well, what does it look like for a certain person to start a practice? And how does that change over time, how they're treating themselves inside? So um, it's really neat to hear the stories of my students when they work on these new skills and to notice, you know, wow, you know, before this would have really upset me, but I had this experience last night and I was able to, you know, breathe for a few minutes and I was able to um, support myself through it. And it wasn't as bad as I thought. And hearing that, especially from, you know, a young person makes me think, well, you know, if a 19-year-old can implement this new skill consciously on purpose to cope with stress, then I think a lot of other folks can do that as well. So what if someone wakes up and they're just, you know, as they say, woke up on the wrong side of the bed or they're not having a good start to their day? What are they supposed to do with those emotions and feelings? I don't know that there's any one way to handle a difficult feeling like that. I think it depends on, you know, if they just lost a loved one, it might just be really rough. It might just be allowing those feelings to exist. Um, But in a kind context, so, okay, I'm feeling really crummy. I'm sorry. That's terrible to feel crummy. And then those little steps we can support ourselves in the small moments. So even if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, are you still able to get up from bed? And can you kind of give yourself a pat on the back for that? Okay. I didn't even want to get up. I remember this one time that I went to a, um, an early morning exercise class and we were lifting weights and, um, the instructor was really encouraging. He said, you've already done the hardest lift of the day. And he meant getting out of bed. (laughs) So I really appreciated that. Um, and I think that acknowledging those small moments, okay, you know, this day has been really rough, but I, you know, I already got through half of it. If we can treat ourselves that way rather than, okay, this is terrible that I'm feeling so bad. I should be able to cope better. It really goes a long way if we can offer ourselves support, even on those hard days. That's such wise advice. You know, I, I think 
a lot of people are struggling for different ways to deal with the emotions and feelings they have. And sometimes I, I would think that it's really hard to decide, okay, which way do I go? I think so. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's really helpful to build some of your practices on days that aren't so hard. And it doesn't have to be this serious investment of time. Okay, I'm going to meditate for you know five hours a day. Not at all. I don't think that we have to do that. I think it's more about, you know, getting into a routine. So, you know, we brush our teeth and it's not usually this big deal where we have to force ourselves to brush our teeth. I mean, maybe sometimes, but, you know, for most of us, we sort of incorporated that right into our day. So for me, when I wake up, I like to say, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, in one of the first few moments to kind of start the day by calling myself my friend and by being supportive towards myself. And I've integrated that into my routine. So it's not, you know, a big deal now. I don't have to say, okay, remember, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. It's just kind of what I do now, like brushing my teeth. It's simple enough. Everyone can remember that and and use that as a place to start. Sure. Absolutely. If you like, I also even have some folks who put phone notifications on. Okay. Um, you know, it's my self-compassion break at 1230 PM. A self-compassion break is a technique, uh, introduced by Dr. Kristen Neff, and it involves noticing something that's a little bit difficult in your life. I usually ask people not to start with a biggest, most difficult thing, kind of like, you know, you don't want to pick up the 50 pound weights at the gym first thing and just kind of noticing, okay, this is something that's a little difficult. And can I give myself this moment of care about it? Can I say, yes, give myself an acknowledgement that this thing in my life is really hard right now. And can I remind myself that, you know, all humans have things that are hard. So this is a part of life. And can I treat myself with a little bit of kindness since I'm going through this hard thing? So the whole self-compassion break only takes about two minutes. But if you have a reminder on your phone to do it every day to kind of check in and give yourself some support, then it's not that hard. And we have some skills and technology that might support this mental training and help us integrate it into our lives. So a lot of people are on social media and we see a lot of things on how we should look or things that we need that we be younger, healthier, skinnier, whatever the thing is. So how do people have a healthy relationship with social media, but they're able to still work and having healthy self-talk? I think this is a challenge, honestly. And again, going back to the research, um, social media exposure is associated with self-criticism. So it is just, I think, really tempting to see a lot of those gorgeous, beautiful images or people, you know, smiling all the time and thinking, okay, it's just me. Everybody else is doing great. So I think that it can be very helpful to know before you open social media, why you're doing it. Sometimes I open it and I I know that I'm trying to connect with people that I want to feel like, okay, I'm not alone in my home, that I'm connected to these other beings out in the world. And that's kind of helpful for me to know okay, that's why I'm doing it. I'm not just doing it because it's a habit, because I'm bored. Um, And then I think it's important to limit exposure. So it's really easy. You know how social media is. It's sort of addictive, right? You're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And for most people, they they don't really want to be doing that for hours a day. That's not really how they want to spend their time. It just sort of happens. So you can also be very intentional that, okay, I'm going to go on for 10 minutes. I'm I want to wish my friend happy birthday or like, I, I really want to, you know, see if this new author has a, a new book or, you know, there's a new show that I'm interested in. So you have this intention and purpose when you o- open social media and then hopefully give yourself a time limit for when you're going to close it. And I think I'm going to ask you the million dollar question here. So, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that is. <laughs> so, when it comes to friends and family, you know, we people are getting together and we're mingling with folks who may not be all that healthy for us. So how do we how do we manage that when we're dealing with people who may be on a negative path always? It's really difficult. Um, you know, this practice that I mentioned before, loving kindness meditation, has a really interesting history and tradition. It's very helpful for reducing self-criticism, but it 
was also developed as a way to extend friendliness towards everyone, towards all beings, because of course we might not feel friendly. We might feel disapproving or even that somebody is um, not good for us. If anybody is hurting you, I think it's important to set boundaries and limit your exposure. But if there's someone you find just sort of difficult or kind of who annoys you, it can be really interesting to practice the loving kindness meditation for them. So in fact, the, the five sort of categories that the loving kindness meditation was developed for are for yourself, for somebody who has helped you, like a friend or a benefactor, a mentor, for somebody who's neutral. And it's really interesting to send good wishes to, you know, your bus driver or the person who makes you coffee to, you know, really think, okay, I really hope that person has a good day today. It can be really interesting to see how that feels. And then the fourth category is a difficult person. And just like I mentioned before with the self-compassion break, I encourage people not to start with the most difficult person in their entire life. But if there's a person who just annoys you a little bit, what is it like if you really wish them well? Does that help shift things around inside for you at all? And it might not do so right away, but maybe 10 times of wishing them well, maybe you'll feel it on the 10th time. So that's something that you might try out. And then uh, the fifth category is wishing well for all beings, excluding none. Well, that is such a, um, it, it, it takes some practice, I'm sure, but it's a, a very powerful way to move through that. It's been a really interesting experiment, and I really enjoyed wishing people well. Um, I've done it when I'm driving. <laughs> I wish the other drivers well, and it can really change your experience. Well, not many people do that. So I think it's a good practice for us all to get into, right? <laughs> it can certainly be something to try out. And, um, you know, we do have sort of these empty moments sometimes. I mean, I know that people's lives are really, really busy, but, you know, yeah, if you're driving, if you're uh, at the supermarket getting groceries, a lot of us are just kind of, you know, ruminating <laughs> mental activity, just kind of default, you know, thinking over this and that. So it can be really fun. It can actually, I think, make your experience better. In, um, in my own experience, I, I feel happier if during some of those moments, I take a moment to really send good wishes to the person who's helping me with my groceries. I feel a lot better than if I'm just, you know, blah, blah, blah in my own mind. Well, that's just, I think that's just such a powerful way to walk through the world. And as we look at using this practice of self-talk and becoming better in how we talk to ourselves, does this impact our jobs and our relationships as a whole just by us working on ourselves? The evidence indicates that it does, that improving the way that you relate to yourself, if you can relate to yourself in a more compassionate way, that that translates into having better relationships better work performance, and being rated as more effective by the people whom you serve at work and by your colleagues. So there's a lot of benefits towards investing in developing healthier self-talk that's more encouraging and supportive. I am just so impressed with all the research you did with this. It's such a compelling book and one that is going to stay on my bookshelf. Where, what do you want readers to take away from your book? I hope that readers understand that self-talk is a habit and it's a habit that can be changed, that there are specific things that they can do that aren't too hard or too difficult to change the default way that they relate to themselves and that they have more control, more choice um, than they think in terms of building the relationship that they want to have with their own thoughts and feelings. and that working on that relationship can have a really powerful impact in terms of mental health and well-being. Rachel, where can our listeners connect with you and be part of your community and learn more about your work? I have a website. Um, it's rachelturo.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Rachel Goldsmith Turo. So I'd be very glad to hear from readers as they try out these different strategies. You can let me know which ones worked for you or if you have any questions about them. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. 
Thanks so much, Marianne. Thanks for having me. It's been so much fun to speak with you. Well, thank you, Dr. Turo. It has been such an honor to spend this time with you and to talk about your new book, The Self-Talk Workout. Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. Make sure to visit Dr. Rachel Turo's website at rachelturow, that's spelled T-U-R-O-W dot com. Be part of her community, learn more about her work, and understand how you can transform your life. The Self-Talk Workout is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all indie retailers. And remember to support our indie bookstores. You can also purchase this book from the publisher, Shambhala Publishing, at shambhala.com. On that note, we're going to pause here for a quick break, and we'll be right back after this message. I'd like to thank Jason Eastwood at Guitarfulness for sharing his inspiring music and talent with us. His music is known worldwide for cultivating atmospheres of harmony, inner peace, and clarity. Visit Jason's website at guitarfulness.com. Join his newsletter, be part of his community, and download his music. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne, where we make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.